Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Benjamin Franklin once said there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. I will amend that statement and add one more, and it's crucial to this holiday season, The three certainties in life are death, taxes, and kids that want to open their gifts early at Christmas, okay? And maybe you've been there, maybe even as an adult, maybe you've done this where you, the presents are under the tree, which is torture. Christmas is a time of torture, okay? And it's really good for parents. You put the gifts under there early and tell, you know, tell your kids, if you don't want those presents to disappear, you need to behave, that sort of, that's a good strategy, right, for parents, so maybe you've even done that, maybe as a teenager, or maybe you've even, and so you go down and you find whichever gift is yours, and you try to hold it and see, hmm, this is kind of heavy. Did they get any bricks, you know, or <laughs> did I really get coal in my gift? Or, and you maybe shake it to see if it makes a sound, and maybe it's not supposed to, but it does now because you shook it too hard, that sort of thing. Or maybe you actually open up your gift and try to rewrap it so nobody knows that you did that. Has anybody done that before? So we know that the reason we celebrate Christmas is not for the gifts or even the family or anything like that. It's to celebrate the birth of Christ. The greatest gift ever given to all humanity is the Son of God. And so we know that to be true, but the reason I brought this up about opening gifts early or or trying to shake them to get a clue as to what's in them is because 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah sort of finds the gift under the tree and shakes it a little bit. So Isaiah 9 is where we're going to be for this entire series called Unto Us, and it's this prophecy that Isaiah gives about Jesus. Now, he doesn't know it's going to be Jesus. He doesn't know who it's going to be or when this is going to happen, but God gives him this vision, this prophecy, this foretelling of this person who will come, the Messiah who we sang about earlier, who will come and save his people. And he has some specific character traits that Isaiah lists in this prophecy that we're going to look at uh, this Christmas season. And so we're going to read sort of the end. We're going to read a broader part of this today to look at the first character trait that Isaiah looks at to describe Jesus this Christmas season. And we'll read, we won't read all of this every week, just the end, but we're going to start at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9 because it gives us the first description of Jesus, even though, again, Isaiah had no idea who he was talking about. So let's look at this this morning. Yeah. Isaiah. Oh, I did that with my mouth. That worked. Okay. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse number 2, and then through verse 7. So Isaiah prophesies this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. This is the most well-known part. 
For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So we see this prophecy from Isaiah, again, 700 years before it actually happens. That's a pretty amazing thing to consider. And he describes, he gives these titles or descriptions of this Messiah who will come. So we have these descriptions, and I started out early in the beginning of this chapter because the first one is at the very beginning. So what Isaiah does here is the first description that he gives of the Messiah, who is Jesus, is a great light. Now, I don't know about you, but as I've gotten older, I, have, I more appreciate practical gifts at Christmas. Like, if I were seven getting socks, that would be lame. <laughs> but now, if I get socks, especially if they have a pattern on them or a color scheme to them, I'm like, this is awesome. This is a great gift, you know? Or I enjoy, you know, like kitchen utensils, like measuring cups, because they get used for everything else besides what I need them to be used for, Okay. They end up in the coffee can or the cat food or in the craft box. And I'm like, I don't have a third cup measuring cup anymore. How am I going to do this? So if I get measuring cups or measuring spoons for Christmas, it's not a lame gift. It's very practical. It's useful. And I enjoy that. And I, and I like those kinds of gifts. Now, occasionally I get a gift that's not as practical. And it's like, oh, this is cool. This is nice. But still, as I've gotten older, the more practical, useful gifts that I would need on a daily basis are appreciated. So what we see here about this first uh, description of Jesus as the light is that it's very much needed. It is a practical gift. He says the people have walked in darkness, but they've seen a great light. They, they've walked in a land of shadows. They've lived in this place of shadow, but a great light has now dawned. It's very much needed. And to illustrate that, I just want to take a few minutes. I know we're going to go through the Bible all next year, but I want to go through the, basically the Old Testament here for just a, a couple of minutes and look at Israel's history that is nothing basically but darkness. Darkness upon darkness upon darkness. Israel's history from the very beginning has been a little glimmer of light here, a small thing of hope there, but pretty much dark throughout. And see why this light is so needed for them. In this context. So the first time that we, really, that we really see Israel as a nation, so Abraham, one guy, God tells him, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you, but he has some kids and grandkids and great-grandkids are like, yeah, it's a big family, but it's not a nation. So you have to fast forward hundreds of years into the future until you see hundreds of thousands of people as a nation, but the problem is they're slaves. They're in Egyptian bondage, and they have been for 400 years at the time Moses comes to deliver them. Again, a little sliver of hope and light here, just for a brief moment. They go from slaves to free, but then the darkness ensues again because of their unbelief in God's plan. A generation dies in the desert. We're back to darkness really fast here. We had like two seconds of light and hope and joy, and now it's like all of my parents and grandparents are dead. So then after that, you'd think, well, now they're going to go into the promised land. Things are going to be great. God's going to do awesome things. However, the next generation that makes it in, they have to fight and battle and war and bleed and die to get the land that God promised them. So 400 years of slavery, 
generation dies in the desert, generation conquers and con does conquest in the not fun stuff. And then we get into Israel has their own land, their own borders, their own identity. They, they now can say, okay, we are a thing now, officially. We have been for a long time, but now everybody else can see that we're a real thing here. But then we have a period called the Judges. There's actually an Old Testament book called Judges. You can read about these leaders that kind of rise and fall and rise and fall. 300 years of kind of unsteady leadership for Israel. They finally got to where God wanted them to get, and now it's like, is this going to last? Can we pull this off? Can we do this? Is everything going to get blown up? And time and time again, they kind of do great for a while, and they don't do great for a while, and they do great for a while, and they don't do great for a while. And that's how it is until finally they choose a king. Now, to make a long story short, God didn't want them to do this. He kind of said, you, you don't want this. You think you want it. But you don't, and we'll see why in just a second. So they choose a king, King Saul. He's a young guy, strong guy. He's a guy they can look to, and he'll be their leader, and, you know, he'll speak to, to God for them and, and from, you know, from God to them and that sort of thing. So for a while here, things are okay. Saul up, has ups and downs, but there's still some stability for Israel. Then David follows him for 40 years, and there's stability. There's growth. The empire expands. And then his son Solomon becomes king, and for quite a while, things are peaceful and prosperous, and things are going wonderfully until they're not. So, again, we've already had maybe a thousand years of history here. We've had about a hundred years of light, and now that's about it, and now it's all going to come crashing down. So at the end of Solomon's reign, everything falls apart. There's a civil war. The kingdom splits north and south, and it's, they're just at odds now. And they're less secure, and they're less complete. Obviously, they're fractured. So now we're in darkness again. And then when they're trying to live on their own, do their own thing, the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel is overtaken by the Assyrian army uh, in the 720s B.C., and they are taken into exile. They, again, are occupied by a foreign power. And the southern kingdom is looking at them saying, ha, look. You got what you deserved. And it's like, well, wait 150 years, and then you'll get a taste of that. And so then the Babylonians attack the southern kingdom. So now everybody that was in Israel is now somewhere else under some other power, under their authority, under their boot, under their law, under their religion. It's just a scattered mess. And that's sort of how it was really until recent history. It's, they're just scattered everywhere. And so they sort of have their own cities and towns, and they can sort of do their religion depending on who the, who the emperor is or the king is at the time in that region, but it's just not quite what it was supposed to be. It's darkness upon darkness upon darkness. So then while they're scattered, we read about all this in the Old Testament, but then there's 400 years where there's a huge gap. We call it the intertestamental period. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years of nothing. Radio silence, static, darkness. God's not speaking through a mighty prophet anymore. He's not raising up a national leader to do anything. There's a lot of nothing going on. Now, there's some interesting history in that time, but nothing that is really of much note. So, darkness upon darkness upon darkness. During that time, if we kind of zoom out to the region of the world, the Roman Empire is really starting to gain some steam at this time in the world. They're starting to expand. They actually have a, their emperor, uh, Augustus, who as you read, if you read the, the birth story of Jesus, Augustus Caesar, that's who we're talking about. He's a real guy who really existed, right, in actual history. The Bible is actual history. And so he's the first real emperor of the Roman Empire. And he is wanting to keep a firm grasp on his empire. And so we see that, again, the people of Israel are under this oppression. They're under the auspices of this foreign government. 
or not. They have some freedom of worship and expression, but not ultimate freedom of worship and expression. They have some leeway, but not really a lot. It's dark. And so they have to think back to what Isaiah said now 700 years ago. A great light. Hey, we could use that great light. So I always sing that song this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That's a song that the Jews didn't really sing that specific song, but they sang songs like that, waiting for their Savior to deliver them, to come and rescue them and free them, much like Moses had many, many years ago. So darkness upon darkness upon darkness. The people walked in darkness. But Isaiah says they have seen a great light. So as we read, the, we're going to read a couple of passages, classic Christmas story passages. Here's the first one. In Luke chapter 2, uh, we read where a great light announces the birth of the great light. So this is Luke chapter 2, verse 8. It says, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So in the midst of all of this national darkness of Israel, uh, in the midst of all of this political darkness that they are facing, in the midst of a time of religious darkness in Israel, these shepherds find themselves in literal darkness in the middle of the night outside doing their own thing, minding their own business, watching over the sheep, and suddenly a great light shines in the heavens, and this being in the sky starts speaking to them. It's the first ever UFO sighting recorded in history, okay? Now, no, they weren't like sucked up in a tractor beam or anything, but it's an a-, a messenger, an angel of the Lord announcing with this great light. Now, again, it says they were terrified. I would say, yes, that would also describe me as well if that happened to me. In the middle of the night, doing my own thing, a great light shines and an angel starts speaking to me. I'm going to have a little bit of terror creeping up in there, okay? So it says, don't be afraid. What Isaiah talked about 700 years ago has just been born. The great light has come. And so the shepherds hearing this news and somehow just believing it say, yeah, let's go check it out. Let's just go wander down to Bethlehem and see what's going on. And they find Jesus there uh, with Mary and Joseph. Uh, He's born. This This is the Messiah that was promised. The great light announced the great light. There's another light that also sort of doesn't just announce the birth of the great light, but gives direction toward the great light. And so we read about this in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. He writes this, Matthew 2 verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star, there's the light, when it rose and have come to worship him. Let's skip down. It's verse number nine. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. 
Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh. No, wait, 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 sorry. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this great light, this star, pointed these wealthy men. Now we sing the song, We Three Kings. They're called Magi. We don't know if they're kings, but we can assume they are very wealthy nobles of some kind from east of the Middle East, so Asia, right? And they see this star, and so the Magi, if you just add a C to the end of that, you get the word magic. So from that, we, we know that they are some sort of astronomers. They look to the stars to guide them and direct them to give them some sort of uh, view on everything in life. And they would also probably have read ancient scriptures. So they look at the stars, see this crazy bright star out of nowhere. Their knowledge of ancient texts from all sorts of different places tell them that means something. That's a big deal. That light is important. It is meaningful. And so they just follow the star wherever it's going to go. It leads them to Bethlehem. As we read, they talk to King Herod, who is the king of the Jews, right? And they tell him when they meet him, hey, we heard that the king of the Jews has been born. We want to go meet him. And Herod's like, well, I'm the king of the Jews, and I wasn't just born. And I'm the king of the Jews, and I haven't just had a kid. So something's up. So he's not too crazy about this idea. But he tells them, hey, go ahead and find where this child is and go worship him so I can go worship him too. And we all know that his plan is to actually kill the child. So when the three wise men, the magi, when they follow the star to the house, let's take a time out for a second so I can burst your Christmas bubble. The three wise men are not at the nativity. So they are just not. So they're, they're in the nativity scene, but they should not be there. Okay? So... <laughs> yeah. Some, there's two different schools of thought here. So some more conservative scholars would say this is at least two or three weeks after the birth of Christ. So it says that they had to travel a, a, a great distance. They didn't get there that same night, okay? And it also says that they found them in the house. Now, Jesus was not born in a house. He's born in a stable or a cave or some outdoor place like that, a barn of some kind. They found him in the house. So they, they know it's sometime later, and then more... Less conservative scholars would say it's up to two years. Jesus might be walk, walking around in a diaper when they find him and give him these gifts. And they would say that estimate would make sense because then once the king, King Herod, hears about this, he tells the wise men to come back, right, to report so where he is so I can go worship him, kill him. And they don't come back. They are warned in a dream, it says, to not go back to Herod, so they go back home a different way. So Herod's like looking at his watch. These guys have been taken forever. He smells something funny. This, they're not going to come back. So he doesn't know where this child is or how old exactly. So his decree is kill every male child two years of age and younger. So crazy guy, obviously, lunatic Herod was. Um, and so that's why the assumption might be he might be as old as two years old because that's kind of the cutoff for when he was born. So I'm sorry to mess up your nativity scene. I do have I do make change mine. I put them all over here at the other. They're at the end. They're not they're not at the barn. Okay, so we literally do that because <laughs> I do the nativity at our house for that reason. You're going to be biblically correct. It's true. But in all seriousness, the idea here is that they follow this star, this great light that directed them to the great. Light. So we see this theme here. So there's a pro possible problem here with gifts at Christmas time, and, and that's simply this. The problem is if you get a gift but you don't know how to use it, it's useless. Or if you misuse it, uh, it's, it's useless. Or the issue is if they don't work as advertised, you get a dud, right? 
You get, uh, or, or it is false advertising. Like you see different things that looks a lot bigger than it really is, you know. It looks a lot shinier and less cheap than it really is. Wish.com, that sort of thing. Or it doesn't quite do what I thought it was going to do. I thought it was going to have this purpose, but it doesn't really do that, so I don't really have a use for this. So Isaiah prophesied about the light, and the angels talked about the great light, and the great star in the heavens talk, led them to the light. However, did the product live up to the billing? Let's look at that. So this is John chapter 8, verse 12. So this is Jesus talking about himself, and he uses this language, I believe, very directly and on purpose. John 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So as far as Jesus is concerned, the claims about him match the actual product. It's not this comparison thing where, no, he never claimed that. Yes, he did. Oh, the prophecies, that was just symbolic. Well, he used the same symbolism to describe himself, so the claim fits. It's the same light that Isaiah hinted at 700 years before. Everything about his life and ministry, even his death, proved to be true. But let's look, let's look quickly, though, at how does that translate to us. So what I want to do just for a couple minutes here is, what does light do, and how does Jesus as the light do those things? We're going to let, let's look at like literal light, what it does, the purpose of it, how we can use it properly, and then see how Jesus being the light does those things in a spiritual way in our lives. So there's three things I'll mention just very briefly. The first thing that light does is light obviously exposes darkness right? It helps us to see clearly, to avoid obstacles, to avoid danger. Oh, there's a hole, there's a pothole in the street. The light shows me that. I'm going to avoid that if I can. Oh, there's a, there's a cliff, this curve. There's nothing on the other side of that. I need to really stay clear of that side of the street. Or if you're walking, you know, in the middle of the kid's bedroom at night, the light will help you to avoid stepping on Legos, which is very helpful. In a natural way, we see light dispelling darkness in a positive sense. But Jesus came to do this spiritually, and that sometimes is less fun, right? So the, the light and perfection of Jesus exposes our own darkness and our own imperfection. And while ultimately we would like to say, yes, please, God, do that. Expose my darkness. We're, we probably don't really, we want him to, but we don't at the same time. It's very complicated. So we instinctively kind of recoil from this idea of, of God exposing our imperfections or calling out our sin. That's a word that we can't use anymore in, in the public square because it's offensive to people, you know. So we resist this naturally. But just like natural light being helpful to uh, expose the darkness, God exposing our dark hearts is for ultimate good. It's sort of like radiation kills cancer cells, but it can also make me not feel very good, Right? But I know in the end that there's a, there's a thing that is, I'm trying to get to it. I have to kind of work through this discomfort or this pain to get ultimately to where I want to be. So light exposes darkness. So the encouragement for us is this Christmas season, don't avoid the light. Allow God to investigate our hearts and say, God, where's that area that I need to improve? What is that sin that I try to keep hidden or that, that addiction I can't crack? Would you help me? You, you have to let him in to expose those things. You have to let him in to show you where your weaknesses might lie. So don't resist the light uh, this Christmas season, but let the light expose the darkness. 
The second thing the light does is sort of the second half of that, and that's light provides direction. So light doesn't just show us where not to go. Light also gives us a path that we should go, in just naturally. I'm not just avoiding a ditch. I'm also staying on the road. So it does both of those simultaneously. And the light of Christ does this in the same way, where it just shows, hey, there's a better way to live maybe than what I've been living. There's a more productive path than the one I have tried to go on. There's maybe a straighter path that may be more difficult and may be painful at times, but it ultimately gets me to where I want, and it does it in a quicker way sometimes. So not giving in to sinful desires is not just, hey, don't do that, it's wrong, but no, there's a better way. It exposes a better way to live. Uh, not taking the easy way, but living a life of integrity that does the hard things sometimes. The light of Christ helps us stay on that path. And if you happen to find yourself in the ditch that you tried to avoid but did not successfully, the light will help you to get out of that ditch. The light will say, hey, that doesn't work. That behavior is awful. That sort of way of looking at things is not helpful. And what it does is it helps us to get out of that, to not be stuck in disappointment, to not constantly be stuck in this rut, to not be stuck in shame and regret, but say, no, there's a better way. Let's get ourselves out of the ditch, walk in the light, and move forward. So shining this, this uh, path forward to new life, to forgiveness, to reconciliation, and to peace. So this Christmas, we want to walk in the light. The third thing that light does, that Christ as the light also does, is light is just simply a symbol of hope. We talk about the light at the end of the tunnel. It's, there's hope there. Just hang on. Uh, or we talk about the, every cloud has a silver lining. There's some light there. I can't really, it's really hard to see, but if I squint and turn my head and hold my tongue just right, I can maybe see the, that little positive piece there. Even something as simple as the bat signal. The ultimate symbol of hope. This light in the sky in the shape of a bat tells me help is on the way. These mean streets are not safe right now, but look, he's coming. Batman's coming. So even, even something as simple as, as the bat signal is the symbol of hope. It's, it's light. Jesus is the light of the world, which means he is the hope of the world. He's the light of the world and the hope of the world. He offers fullness of life. So in John 10, Jesus says, I've come to give life and life more abundantly, life to the full, a better life than you could ever imagine living on your own, a better life than you can ever try to live without me. That's what he offers is hope. So this Christmas, I want us to enjoy the hope of Jesus as the light of the world. There's one more thing as we close, and that's this. And I, I got ahead of myself in my brain, so I flipped a switch. The last thing I want to look at, though, quickly is the other issue is when we receive a gift, we have to use it correctly. So let's say, for instance, you get a brand new drill. It's an awesome drill. It's fancy. It's a cordless drill. You can try to use the bottom of that as a hammer. Okay? And you might get that nail to go in a little bit before you just totally bust up your brand new drill. Okay? You have to use the gift correctly. You might get a brand new fancy knife block set, and you could try to use that butcher knife to cut down your Christmas tree at the Christmas tree farm, but it's not going to work. That's not what it's designed to do. It's not the point of that type of gift. We have to not only receive the gift, but know how to use it correctly and effectively. So we receive this gift of light, Jesus, 
But then here, as we close, is how we use it correctly, what it means to use this gift correctly. Matthew 5, verse 14. Jesus, again, here speaking, he says, you are the light of the world. Now, he's already said, I am, about himself, but now he's saying, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So we don't just want to possess the light. We also want to reflect the light. That's how we use this gift correctly and effectively. Because it's true, if the light has changed me so much, I should want to see that change in others. If it's had such an amazing effect in my life, I can just assume it's going to have an amazing effect in others' lives. So I should then reflect that light. So we live in the light. It's, here, it's not just about feeling better. It's not just about doing good. That's not the point, right? Using it effectively, it's not just about impressing others. Oh, Jesus changed me, so I'm perfect now. You know, you're welcome, world. You know, Jesus has, cha- now he, Jesus has changed my life, and I am a better person, but that's not the point, ultimately. The point is that I can then point people to that same light through the change that has happened in me. That's the whole point. We reflect the light. The same light can expose others' darkness, point them in the right direction, and give them the hope and joy that we have. So, the Christmas season, let's receive the light, let's embrace the light, let's walk in the light, and reflect the light of Christ so that not just we experience this hope and joy and peace and change, and newness of life, but so others can experience all that as well.